Hi, and welcome to Loops, a podcast brought to you by Caribou Projects. We're an arts collective based in Bristol, and each episode we collaborate with an artist, recording our collective curiosities and ambient wanderings. A call to pots and pans. Grand Tan, Tin Pan, Skimmington Ride, Nominee, Shivery, Bluebelling. Ride the Stang, Woodsit. I'm Jessica Akerman, a visual artist based in Bristol. I make artworks that bring together social narratives, pattern and colour. A theme that runs through my work is how different systems of communication are used to define identity, be it at an individual, community or state level. I look at non-verbal language, dress and national branding as cultural artefacts. One of my interests is how folk song and folk customs act as social records and how they relate to present-day experiences, society and landscapes. This podcast explores the folk custom rough music in relation to public shaming. Rough music was and is found in many societies across the globe. In this episode we concentrate mainly on the UK, but look further afield to examine how similar forms of cultural expression are used for the purposes of humiliation and protest, but also celebration and community cohesion. We made this podcast over the course of about five weeks in May and June 2020 during the COVID-19 lockdown, so our conversations with contributors were all done over the internet, hence the differences in sound quality. To get a snapshot of rough music and public shame in this moment in time, we spoke to a composer and sound artist about his work reviving rough music, a folk music researcher on the history of rough music, an art historian and a musicologist on the role that music and noise-making plays in protest, shame and social justice. We also spoke to one of the biggest MCs on the battle rap scene in the USA about public shaming as performance and the feeling of being on the wrong side of the crowd, as well as her thoughts on the role of chanting and noise-making at the recent Black Lives Matter marches she attended in New York. I first heard about rough music actually from my dad. So uh, he's from a, a small village in Suffolk. Well, his, his mum's from a small village in Suffolk, and he told stories about the rough band that he heard from his mum. My name is Nathaniel Mann. I'm a composer and sound artist, and uh, for a long time I've been very interested in work song and in rough music. The rough band, basically, it was a form of social control. If anybody in the village was out of line, if they were not paying their debts, if they'd done something to upset the community in general, if they were having an affair, then the rough band would be assembled under cover of darkness. So in the dead of night, they would surround your house with pots and pans and assail you with noise-making as a warning. And this is why it's called rough music, because it is the noise that really defines the, the custom. I'm Steve Roud, I'm a retired local history librarian and what I do nowadays is I'm a freelance writer and researcher and indexer of folklore materials. All of a sudden the people who were being attacked in this way suddenly hear this dreadful noise coming up the lane 
and surrounding the house. And the crowd, the mob, would do everything they could to shame, publicly shame, the um, victims. The sort of thing that was um, being censured were things to do with marriage, adultery, wife beating, unequal marriages was often the problem, um, an old man marrying a young woman or vice versa, a man marrying too soon after his wife had died or the wife doing the same. So it's, it's that kind of behaviour that went against the sort of local morality that was being censured. I mean, there, there was often a, a flashpoint, a, a, a particular thing that caused the actual ritual to take place. But more often than not, there was something underlying as a cause because these were mostly quite close-knit communities. So everybody knew everybody else and they knew what was going on. And in some ways, it was more brutal than, say, an, an anonymous attack because it was your neighbours and maybe even your friends. Um, it was people that you saw every day. So that the shaming aspect of it was particularly pointed. When you came out of your front door the next day, you would know that some of those people you met, some of those people you worked with, etc., would have been the ones around your house screaming and shouting and breaking your windows. And so in, in some ways you could say that that was worse than being attacked anonymously like somebody online nowadays. But having said that, it was also more controlled in that it was just the local community. It wouldn't spread to the next village or the next village. So from that point of view, it was a much smaller world. The kinds of musical traditions that we associate with rough music, um, like making a loud noise using pots and pans, whatever else, um, are more broadly used as a form of protest, but that I think it probably has a broader application today. And maybe that's because we have other ways of publicly shaming people that are more powerful now. Um, like if you really want to publicly shame somebody, there's probably more effective ways of doing it on the internet. My name is Jazz the Rapper. I battle rap, I make music, and I enjoy life. You're basically going against somebody and you're trying to insult them the best way possible, but still having punchlines, still having bars, um, you know, even having personals is a plus because people love personals. Like, who doesn't love gossip? It started off where you would actually freestyle where it would be off the head, nothing written. Then it became where you knew who you were battling. So you would have time to prepare. Um, you know, I, I think it would be like maybe one week, two weeks. But now battle rap has evolved so much that it could be up to months that you have to prepare. When you have personals in battle rap, it could be as little as exposing the battle rapper's real name, which to me... The thought of it's crazy because how are you making fun of me for a name that my parents gave me? 
It could be from that. It could be from where you work, where you went to school, your kids. It gets kind of crazy. Me, I don't talk about everything, but if a battle rapper does, it's like, hey, it's free game. Sometimes personals, you don't forget about them. <laughs> like, sometimes personals just stick. And it'll stick for years and years and years. And people will keep using it. So, personals can be very dangerous. I'm a female in a, in a male-dominated um, industry. Um, I've been used to it, being just a rapper in general. So, it was never nothing to me. Like, I would say that you have to be really good for you to get respect from the guys that you're in the industry with. Even the fans, too. But when you get respect from your peers and you do the same thing they do, it, it holds a lot more weight. When the crowd is for you, that's the best feeling in the world. Because it's like, you put your time into preparing for this battle. So you basically getting your just do. Like most battle rappers, I would think, were right for a reaction and were right for the crowd to like them. So if they react and it's like, all right, I'm doing my job. It's like, it's like an adrenaline rush. Like you get, it gets you going. It's the difference between the crowd turning on you and the crowd just not fucking with you at all. When a crowd not fucking with you at all, or if they start off fucking with you and then they end up not, that's when it's like, wow. It's just, it's like a new feeling. You know what I mean? And if you're a bat, it don't matter how long you've been in battle rap, like, you know how it go. Like, you, I, I know that it can be very flip-floppy. One battle they love you, the next battle they don't. So, you know, you just got to take it in stride. It's all about the bounce back. But that feeling is just like, wow. Ain't a good feeling at all. You know, when we watch courtroom dramas, we tend to identify with the kind-hearted defense attorney. But give us the power, and we become like hanging judges. Power shifts fast. Hello, my name's Edwin Kumasaru. I'm a research fellow at the Paul Mellon Centre. There's a fascinating question here about whether uh, shame in of itself or, or collective shame in of itself is always necessarily a regressive, conservative feature of our lives or whether it's also about power and who has power at which moment and the very struggles over it. The thing I suppose about shame is it's not fixed or static and its parameters are constantly shifting. And so you can trace a whole set of societal changes in its ebbs and flows as well. One of the interesting things about you know seeing TV shows from the early 2000s being t taken off streaming services is you can, you can trace the moment in which racist jokes that were meant to induce shame in certain groups of people, the parameters are shifting and now those jokes themselves are considered shameful. Shame itself is unresolved and it, it, is, uh, it is unstable and it is sticky and you never know what it might ultimately shift to.
I'm Kate Guthrie and I'm a lecturer in music at the University of Bristol. Broadly, my research focuses on the uh, cultural, political and social history of music in 20th century Britain. So I think one of the things that makes rough music a very powerful vehicle for uh, the pursuit of social justice is that it provides a powerful way for people to express themselves um, and to communicate their feelings about things. I think that one of the real difficulties in realising social justice is often people who are oppressed are fighting against very big power structures within society. Um, actually seeing those changed can be a really difficult thing. But I think that one of the things we've seen in recent years is that there's been a shift towards sort of identity politics, I guess, as a way for people to express and identify with their sense of disenchantment or disempowerment in the world. And that clearly within the sphere of identity politics, something like rough music is hugely powerful because it is this sort of in the moment, visceral, embodied expression of a sense of injustice. One of the things I've been very interested in in recent weeks is the different ways in which pots and pans have been used. Um, obviously in Britain it seems that there's been a big emphasis on taking this kind of rough music tradition of banging things um, actually to express support, a positive sentiment for the NHS. Because I've got this vested interest in this history of uh, rough music and and and, and protest and, and noise as protest, I really wanted to listen to it. I did, in a way, I didn't want to contribute, so I did on a couple of occasions. We've got a window in the attic, and um, so I sat out and just went up and listened. I didn't go as far as recording it, but um, I wanted to listen to it, move across the neighbourhood, and you know, experience it from outside. It puts you in this strange situation of I'm not contributing, I'm not participating but um but it was beautiful to hear it because we we're slightly up on a hill and and that sense of of unity uh, that you experience by by hearing that that shared moment uh, it was it was really moving it, it's very democratic um, and everyone can do it and so i think there's a certain power in it being something spontaneous and something that isn't um, you know, regularly practice it in that sense. In Brazil, exactly the same practice has been used to express completely the opposite, uh, which is a sense of deep dissatisfaction with how the government's been dealing with the pandemic. And also what you see now, you know, that we live in a globalised world, is that these instances of rough music being used, like uh, this case from Brazil, um, can be publicised on a global scale. So in that sense, I think there's definitely a growing awareness of the possibility of this as a um, sort of form of protest um, and also that as a form of protest rough music is being kept more in the forefront of people's minds because we do hear about these instances of it occurring around the world. So another recent example of, uh, of rough music that's kind of contemporary to when I was developing the project was there was a lot of use of it in, in Montreal in 2012 and there were, there were protests against anti-protest um, rules in Quebec. And so they used uh, uh, pots and pans again, and they have a term for it, which is um, the casserole, which refers to the casserole dish, which is similar to the Spanish casserolada. So this is an international, um, this is an international use of, of noise and rough music, just with different names wherever you go.
Yeah, the chance. I feel like the chance just make it easier to get the point across. You know what I mean? Like, it's always good to have a leader that speaks. But, you know, we we came to the protest to be a part of something. And the chant makes you a part of something. And, you know, like, say his name. George Lloyd, say her name. Breonna Taylor. And, um, what, what was it? Um, hands up, don't shoot. Like, it, it really instills, you know, what you really mean. Because when you have thousands of people chanting the same thing, you know, you just take it serious. You take it more serious than if one or two people saying it. So the chants were really, um, really a great thing to do. And I'm sure that's just part of protest culture. You chant, you know what I mean? It gives you the the rhythm of it, basically. You know what I mean? And it just shows a lot of engagement, too. Like, there was even a guy. He had, I don't know what it was. He had some type of instrument. And he would play it along to the chants. You know what I mean? So now it became like a song. You know, and it's, it's, I don't want to say it's to make it fun. But it brought some, some uh, light to the situation, like, you know, yes, we are here protesting something serious, but we're 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 angry, yes, but you know, just to lighten up the mood. That's what I meant to say. Lighten up the mood and you know, he was playing his instrument to the song to the chant, so it became very like song like. When George Floyd got killed, you know, it really did change the world and I don't know what it is about his death or maybe it's the timing of it that really caused people to just like stand up if I'm talking in 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 a large number like way bigger than it's ever been like when I saw that um in the UK they were protesting it was just kind of like wow I made a post on Facebook like two weeks ago and I was like I don't know something feels different this time around like it was like the end of May I'm like something feels different about this time with all these protests and just everything going on, like, I felt like the murder of George Floyd was going to change a lot. You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 always protest, 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 nothing happens, you know? But they passed the Breonna Law with Breonna Taylor. Um, I know that the NYPD, they just basically canceled the plainclothes officers, like, that are part of the anti-crime unit. So, you know, just a lot of things are actually changing you know, as far as the communities and laws and the things that needed to be changed for the world to be changed as far as protecting black people. You know what I mean? I Can't Breathe, the words of George Floyd moments before his death, have rung out at protests around the world and become an oral symbol of both the horror of racism and a cry for change. As Ben Ockrey has written, its resonance within a pandemic which affects the lungs and ability to breathe is uncanny, with people coming out to protest despite the risk from coronavirus. After the Cummings lockdown scandal, when the media congregated outside his house, the clap for carers became a boo for Boris in some quarters, the Prime Minister's support for one man acting as a symbol for his disregard for the UK public.
So when I was reading about the history of rough music, it seems that it's very, like historically, it's strongly associated with kind of rural communities. One of the things that I think is interesting about what happens when you take that music tradition and put it in a city is that you have an urban environment that is firstly more noisy to begin with, but also as a result of that, where noise is ordinarily a lot more controlled. And so you think about all the governmental uh, restrictions and limitations on the creation of noise within cities and that therefore actually it seems that this old tradition of rough music can be newly powerful within this urban context because that context is ordinarily more sort of regulated. So obviously within cities ordinarily there's a lot of background noise of cars driving around and actually if you want to protest above that, pots and pans are a very, very powerful way of doing that. The sort of change to urban life at this particular point in time where a lot of that sound's been removed probably adds another level of sort of presence to that noise again. If you look at the futurists and, the, and their work with noise and, and the idea and the, the, the onset of the industrial age and, you know, the arrival of uh, industrial noise and, um, and motorways and cars and we're surrounded by noise all the time. So I guess in the past, noise would have been a much more potent tool in a way. Than, than it is now. I mean, it obliterates um, other communication, but also the the levels of noise. I mean, if you look at look back to the the um, arrivals of steam trains and people talking about the sound, that they hadn't experienced anything like that. So maybe maybe rough music was the the, the loudest thing that that many people would have experienced for the large duration of their lives, potentially, and that's that's possibly why one of the reasons why it was such a powerful tool the percussive military beat is an instinctively human response to conflict and an effective confrontational tool banging drumming stamping pounding chanting and hollering have been used in societies and battles across the globe and across historical periods Ottoman soldiers' janissaries would signal their mutiny by overturning their cooking pots. Like many other conflicts, the Troubles in Northern Ireland had its own soundscape. The tradition of rebel songs, which tell of Irish rebellions against the English and British, retained currency, with later rebel songs evolving into support for the nationalist cause and IRA. As depicted in the opening scene of Steve McQueen's film Hunger, about the 1981 Irish hunger strike, Northern Irish women developed their own form of rough music, creating a distinctive sonic tool using everyday domestic objects. At the start of the Troubles, there were a number of protests in Northern Ireland when the British Army moved in in the aftermath of civil rights protests. And a number of Catholic women in in the local area took it upon themselves to organise these patrols in order to warn the local community when the British Army turned up on the streets to do house raids. And these patrols involved banging bin lids very loudly on the streets uh, whenever the army appeared. And they would also, the women would then chase the soldiers around the streets in order to intimidate them and frighten them out of the area, while also warning the local IRA members that they needed to escape. 
I do have some quotes from some of the women who took part in the experience, and they uh, they described it as uh, this is a quote. Um, the, the soldiers were shaking, panicking, they were terrified, they were yellow. And others described the experience as their political education, as a kind of resistance and a fight back. Because the episode was also this moment of consciousness raising for lots of women in these areas and a real kind of politicization as well. In, in the patrols themselves, it was just women. So they were known as, and I assume that some of these terms are meant to, were meant to be kind of derogatory, but they were known as hen patrols, the bin lid brigade or the petticoat brigade. But they were all groups of just women. And this was at a time when women were increasingly organising and occupying the streets as a collective force themselves. So they did things like all groups of women marched against British army curfews. So it's a really interesting moment at the beginning of a civil war in which ideas of gender themselves are starting to change and transform. We spoke to Nathaniel Mann about his practice and a surprising discovery he made while digging around in online archives. So I was the composer in residence at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, which is a museum of anthropology and world archaeology for two years, probably about five or six years ago, maybe maybe a bit longer. And, and there I was exposed to lots of different um, instruments and uh, I did various projects. And for my last project, I wanted to kind of bring together various strands of things that I'd seen. And so I'd been working closely with a, with a local community gamelan group but I'd also, in my own practice, been exploring work song and been exploring um, the, the physicality of, of chopping wood and, and of, of physically working um, whilst um, not performing music, but whilst making music. And, and then it, you're in Oxford and all the bells ringing and there's a, there's a big history of uh, campanology there. So I just had this idea that if you kind of drew a triangle of those three points of gamelan, which is struck bronze percussion music from, from Indonesia, of work song, so the physicality of, of, uh, of noises, which are extra musical, so chopping of wood and, and, and that, that, that the kind of forceful noises that come across it, and the bell ringing, the peals and, and, the, and the tumbling of, the, of these bells. If you if you'd put, laid them out as a kind of triangle, then you sat in the middle of that, that would be a very nice place to be. So I decided to try and create that space. And, and it was on my journey to create that, that I inadvertently recreated a, a 18th century rough music instrument that I didn't know had previously existed. So I began by using an instrument that I'd collected from my um, granddad's um, garage, or my parents' garage, but it left over from my granddad, which was an old meat cleaver, which I'd been using for some years as a percussion instrument within kind of work songs. And working with a sword maker, I decided to make bronze tuned versions of this meat cleaver. But it was a difficult thing because my 
granddad's meat cleaver is a is very kind of idiosyncratic old thing and it, it rings it's got a lovely ping to it but most modern meat cleavers don't do that so i had to look into the then ended up looking into the design of this meat cleaver um and went to the Horniman museum in south london to see the instrument collection there because i've got a huge collection of instruments from out the world and to try and if i can get any insights into instrument design of how i could turn this meat cleaver into an instrument and um just kind of offhand the the, the instruments curator said oh well you've got a meat cleaver there's a there's a 19th century print of a butcher boy making music with a meat cleaver you need to look into that and so i did and that led me on to William Hogarth and the work of Jeremy Barlow, who's a historian who basically unpacks all of the sonic symbols within Hogarth's prints and, and paintings. And he's got this incredible uh, book called The Enraged Musician, which is basically like, a, you know, it's, it's a, a, a codex. It, it decodes every sonic symbol and every musical reference um, and lays them out. And one of Hogarth's sonic symbols is the meat cleaver because it was used in protests. Um, so you f first you'll see a, in a Hogarth print, like a, a crowd scene, like an angry mob protesting um, the election of a new, of, of a new political figure or, 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 or some scandal. And you'll see a meat cleaver raised up above the heads. And you take that as a symbol of violence within, within, the, within the painting. But it's not actually violence. It's a sonic symbol. It's a symbol of protest and sound because they would have been used in that context to make noise. And so suddenly this thing that I was trying to do started to be drawn towards rough music. It wasn't initially what I was setting out to explore. I then, with further digging, found a satirical piece of classical music by a composer called Bonnell Thornton. And... Um, with a, a tantalising little reference. And when I found it, I was digging around on archives online. I literally nearly fell off my seat because I, by this time I'd already cast the bronze meat cleavers and then I was, you know, I was down the path. I was doing this. And I found this little reference to a performance in, in the 1600s for which he had cast bronze meat cleavers in bell metal for this performance. So strangely, I'd done a recreation of something that had happened uh, 300 years ago without even knowing it. find out more about rough music and our contributors you can head over to our website at caribouprojects.com if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to be notified about future episodes then subscribe on your platform and if you'd like to support us further you can leave us a review on itunes another way you can support this podcast is by buying a limited edition poster by oliver mcconney which is also available on our website <laughs>